care for us. We thank you. Now, Father, my prayer is, as always, that it would be all of you and none of me. You would increase as I decrease. That the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in thy sight. For Lord, you are my strength. You are my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome all of you again this morning, and this the second Sunday of this new decade. We're so happy to see so many of you back with us that have been traveling and doing different things for the holiday. Glad to have you back, and we uh, just are excited about what God has in store. Listen, we're continuing today in our series through the book of Romans. And we have arrived at Romans chapter 8. We arrived there last week, but we are continuing in Romans chapter 8 today. And I said to you last week, and I'll reiterate today, that Romans chapter 8 not only is uh, one of the most quoted and most loved uh, chapters of Scripture in all the Bible, it is indeed my favorite and I would have to add that this uh, passage today uh, of Romans chapter 8, would, if I had to select a part of the chapter that I would say of my favorite chapter is my favorite passage, it would be the one that we're covering today. And so then if you have your Bible or even if you don't, would you stand with me uh, as we read together Romans chapter 8 verses 18 through 30. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. And when you get there, you'll find the following words. The Apostle Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subject, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first, few, first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of son, as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we say we, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. You may be seated. Such wonderful words. 
and the Apostle Paul. Praise, perfection, consummation, completion, dignity, grandeur, greatness, immortality, majesty, prestige, triumph, distinction, eminence, exaltation, illustriousness, kudos, magnificence, nobility, praise, renown, sublimity. The words I've just read to you are all synonyms for the words glory or glorified. It is in scripture the Greek word doxa. Everybody say doxa. It's this Greek word which means honor, approval, brightness. It means to raise to a heavenly dignity and condition or state of being. Glory. To glorify. Glorification. Wonderful word. So, today... I like to talk about from this passage the hope of glory. The hope of glory. The hope of glory. We see this word, this word doxa, this word glory, in this context all throughout Scripture. All throughout Scripture, you'll see this word. Uh, it is uh, quite frequently used. In fact, you'll recall in John chapter 17, Jesus, the night before his death, in, in what we know today as his high priestly prayer. He prays to the Father that night, and in his prayer, he says these words. In John 17, 1 through 5, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Doxa your son, glorify your son, that the son may glorify, may doxa you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, Jesus prays, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, Jesus cries out, Doxa me, glorify me in your own presence with the doxa, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. This hope of glory was not only a final request of Christ, it's also quite attractive, it's quite attractive to those of us who profess to follow him, including Paul and us. This is attractive to us, this glory, this glorification, this glorifying process. It's it's attractive to Paul. It's attractive to us. It, 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 it is what Jesus prays. For us, it's the reality of the already, not yet. Because we are experiencing right now a glimpse of God's glory in our lives. We're experiencing now, but, but we know that there's greater glory to come later in the future. It is happening right now. It's the, it's the already, but it is also the not yet because we're in it right now. We feel it right now. We're, we're basking in it right now. But we know that there is greater that has not yet appeared that we shall experience. 
it is that. It's what John describes in 1 John 3 and 2 when he says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Uh, in this week's preaching paragraph from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30, which comes, by the way, on the heels of Paul discussing our adoption and joint heirship with Christ. We find in this pericope, we find that it begins with the word doxa, glory, in verse 18, and it ends with glorification in verse 30. It's, it, it, it's, it's bookended by the same word. It's bookended by glory and glory. In other words, I believe Paul getting ready to take us from glory to glory. It's there in this text because for Paul, his readers in Rome and us, glory is no doubt our desired destination. It is. All of us desire to be complete and to be perfected. I don't know about you, but it's my desire because I realize I'm not there yet. But I realize, Brother Kimmy, that uh, at some point what John says in 1 John is going to happen, I'm going to be like Christ. And I desire that with all of my heart to be perfected and to be completed. Glorification is the third phase of salvation and it third and final phase, by the way. There is nothing beyond that. And it signifies some things. It signifies, number one, of the completion of God's process in us. But not only that, it also signifies uh, uh, the opportunity to have eternal admission into God's presence. Eternally, to be in his presence forever. That's what glorification is. It, it, it allows us to be admitted eternally, forever. We have access now, but we're not, we're not physically in his presence. We, we, can't, we can't look upon his glory. We can't see him right now. But glorification allows us to be eternally admitted into his presence. But, but, but it raises a question. All of this, all of this I've said, all of this I've, I've just said to you raises a relevant question. Here is the relevant question. If glory is our wonderful promised destination, what is our mode of transportation? If glory is, I'm going to say that again because that sounded kind of good to me. I don't know about you, but uh, if glory is our wonderful promised destination, then, then we're going to need some transportation to get there. So then, question is, how do we get there? How, how do we get there? You should know Paul quite well by now. We've been studying Romans for a while, and you in your own personal life and study have read Paul probably upside down, sideways, and every which way. And so because we know Paul so well by now, uh, you should know that he never posits or intimates a question either expressed or implied without providing a detailed answer. So we know that if the question is what we've already said it is, then obviously because uh, of, of what we know Paul is and how we know he normally operates and writes, we know that he has somewhere given us the answer to this question. Uh, Sometimes the question and the answer are lying in plain sight on the surface of the text. And sometimes you have to mine a little deeper for both. Sometimes when you read Paul, you don't even realize that there's a question that has been posited. Sometimes when you read Paul, you can't figure out if you do understand and see the question. Sometimes the answer is not lying in plain sight. Uh, this matter, this matter of destination, as well as the answer to the question of transportation, are both here if we look close enough. Both are here. I believe the text reveals for us five answers to the question, how do we get to glory? I believe it's here. 
And that all of these answers come together to form our collective mode of transportation to this divine destination. I believe they'll come together to do that. First thing I see in the text is in the very first verse, and I believe without this, we won't make it. We won't make it. It's a tough one, but first one I see is suffering. It's in verse 18. It's a part of the journey. It's, it, it, it's, a, it's a segment of a part of this, 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 this transportation that we have to endure in order to make it to glory. Verse 18 says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, there's an S on it, which means that number one, there are going to be many. <laughs> Somebody should have said amen right there. You've already experienced this in your life that it's not one thing. Right. But there are many of these sufferings that we will have to endure. It's the Greek word pothema. Somebody say pothema. It means affliction. It means calamity. It means misfortune, passion or enduring, which is the reason for the S, enduring suffering. It, it means that it don't just happen one time. It is something that we will have to endure in an ongoing on an ongoing basis. It is this, the afflictions which Christians must undergo in behalf of the same cause which Christ patiently endured. It is how we identify with him. I like what Paul says in Philippians 3.10. He says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, that I may be made like him. It is necessary, not pleasant but it's necessary. Um, Paul says this. He says, these sufferings are present, they are real, and they are unavoidable. But, here's the good news, they can't come close to comparing to the future glory that awaits the believer. And so although they're difficult, they're real, they're very present, and they're numerous, they can't compare to the promise of God. So let's talk about suffering a little bit more, though. Uh, let's talk about the purpose or the purposes, right? So one of the purposes of suffering is preparation. Suffering is there to prepare us, right? Uh, I know it's true. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says it this way. He describes our sufferings as light momentary and preparatory. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17, he describes it that way. So I'm reassured that one of the purposes of suffering is preparation. He says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, he says, for this light, I know sometimes it's hard for us to see them as light, but Paul says, listen, understand that relatively speaking, our sufferings are indeed light. I know it don't seem like that when you're in it, but he says they're light, and not only are they, light, are they light, but they are also temporary or momentary, which means that before you know it, it'll be over. But not only that, not only are they light and momentary, but they're preparatory, because he says this, it's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It is preparatory. It's preparing us. You have to keep that in mind when it hits. You have to keep that in mind that God's putting you for something. You have to keep it in mind that it's only taking you somewhere. I love what Spurgeon says. Spurgeon says this, there will be no crown wearers in heaven who have not been cross bearers on earth. Keep it in mind when it hits because you're going to need to know that, 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 that this suffering, Kevin, is preparation for something greater later. Right? Uh, not only is suffering purpose for suffering preparation, another purpose for suffering is development. Development. Uh, it reminds me of oysters. Anybody like oysters? I, I don't really like them. You to, unless they, you have to fry them for me. I, I can't eat them. My wife eats them. <laughs> But 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 interesting thing about oysters, oysters suffer affliction when they get a grain of sand lodged inside their shells. 
it, it bothers them. It, it's affliction for them. No matter what they do, they can't get rid of the grain of sand. The sand gets large there, and it's irritating to the oyster. It's a thorn to them. It's a thorn. It's irritating. It drives them crazy, kind of like sufferings do us. To bring comfort to their anguish, they begin to coat the grain of sand over and over again. They coat it. Coating it doesn't remove it. Coating it simply makes it more palatable for them, more, uh, easier for them to deal with. It doesn't get rid of it. It just comforts them while it's there. Over time, the coating of the grain of sand over and over again produces something very expensive. It produces a pearl. So then, a pearl is a result of an irritated oyster. That's what a pearl is. It's nothing more than the outcome or the result of an oyster that was irritated by a thorn that it couldn't get rid of. The pain resulted in beauty. The pain resulted in elegance. The pain resulted in something of high value. When God, let me see if I can bring it home, when God allows us to suffer, he is producing in us something that is priceless. Suffering, the purpose is, one of them is for development. It develops something. It, it builds something priceless in us that likely could have never been built and developed any other way. Everyone experiences common sufferings. All, all people experience common sufferings. Both the godly and the ungodly experience the same sufferings, right? Godly people get sick. Ungodly people get sick. Godly people have financial problems. Ungodly people have financial problems. Godly folks, kids act bad. <laughs> Ungodly folks, kids act bad, right? It, 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 it doesn't discriminate. All suffer common sufferings. Deal with it. But there, here's, here's the thing. There should be a, a distinction between the two in outcome. All right? So that all of us deal with the same things, no matter if you're a child of God or not. But here's where the distinction should come, Robert. The distinction should be evident in what the suffering does in the life of the person enduring it. I love what Augustine says about this. He says something unique about this. Here's what Augustine says. Though good and bad men suffer alike, we must not suppose that there is no difference between the men themselves because there is no difference in what they both suffer. For even in the likeness of the suffering. There should be, I love this, unlikeness in the sufferers. And though exposed to the same anguish, virtue and vice are not the same thing. For as the same fire, Augustine says, causes gold to glow brightly and chaff to smoke. And under the same flail, the straw is beaten small while the grain is cleansed. So the violence of affliction proves, purges, clarifies the good man, right? That's the outcome when we deal with, should be, when we deal with suffering, this should be the outcome. It should, it should prove us. It should clarify us. It should purge us. But here's what happens to the ungodly. It damns, ruins, and exterminates the wicked. The outcome should be distinct. The sufferings are the same. What it does to us should be different. So, first mode of transportation to glory is suffering. Can't avoid it. It's there. It's what helps us get to glory, isn't it? Then I see something else in the text. The second mode that I see is this, waiting. Waiting. It's in verses 19. 21, 19 through 21, and in verse 25, is there. 
Look at, look at what it says. It says this. For the creation waits, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And then 25 says, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Waiting is a part of our journey. All of creation, Paul says this, all of creation is eagerly waiting to be set free once and for all. The revealing, he said, when he talks about the revealing of the sons of God, it's what will occur when Christ returns for his own. This will bring about full renewal of creation to its original perfection and purpose. This sounds like a truly glorious time. That day, right? All of us look forward to that day. It sounds like a glorious time. Problem is this. It requires waiting. It requires waiting. And waiting is not comfortable or exciting and hence it's not very popular. Nobody, even you, if you're honest, nobody likes to wait. In fact, when I was growing up, they used to say, wait broke the wagon down. <laughs> Y'all never heard that before. That's yeah, you can write that and take it with you. That's something you ain't heard. That's, that's for free. <laughs> Some of y'all were raised in the country. You heard that before. Nobody enjoys waiting. It's not a comfortable experience. It's not popular. But let me say this to you, and I believe Paul says this to us by way of his writing and encouraging us that waiting is a, is, is a, is a required uh, part of our mode of transportation here it is, no matter how uncomfortable things get, don't get impatient with God. Often, though, our problem is when times get tough and we get just a little uncomfortable, alternatives to God seem attractive. We don't want to wait. We, we abandon words like patience, perseverance, and persistence. And we fall victim to the isms of life. Words like prosperityism, pleasureism, and plantoism. Y'all didn't even know those were words, did you? They weren't. I just created them, but it's okay. Those are the isms of our society. Pleasureism, prosperityism, and here's the one that, that made all the drive-throughs possible. Prontoism. Drive-throughs and microwaves. According to their result of prontoism, because all of us have fallen victim to not ever wanting to wait. When I was growing up, mama used to put the food in the oven. I don't care what it was. Early, early, I mean, microwave came along at some point in my childhood. But early in childhood, amen, somebody. Some of y'all not old enough to remember that. You had to put water in it to, you know, make sure it didn't dry up. You just put it in the oven. Chris, you don't know nothing about that. You're too young, no, and, and put it in the oven for a little while. Nobody knew nothing about no, no microwave because it, it, nobody was in a hurry. You just put it in there, and you sit and wait till it's ready. Now you can cook anything in them popcorn. Anybody remember that? You put popcorn on the stove and shake it. Put a little grease, a little oil in the pan. and See, y'all don't know nothing about all that. Now, Rick, we don't want to wait anymore. And so now we, we, we like pronto. We like quick, fast, and in a hurry. We have to wait. We have to wait. Nobody, we, we, here's what it is. We must be willing to go through to get to. Nobody is willing to do that anymore. We, we're not willing to wait upon the Lord. But I love what David says in Psalm 27, 14. He says this, wait on the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. And then he says it again. Wait, King James says, wait, I say, on the Lord. It's David. He writes in Psalm 27. David, you know David. David writes, wait on the Lord. It's important. So one of our modes of transportation is suffering. The other one is waiting. Next one I see in the text is this one. It's growing. 
It takes us to glory. Groaning will help us get to glory. Waiting will help us get to glory. Suffering will help us get to glory. It's in verses 22 through 23 and 26 through 27. In these verses, I see this, a trilogy of groans. I see a trilogy of groans. Let me tell you what I mean. Verse 22, we see creation groaning. Verse 22, look at what verse 22 says. It says this, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation, first, first part of the trilogy, tr- creation is groaning. Not only is creation eagerly awaiting, as we just said, all of creation, that means mankind, that means animal life, that means nature, that means all of creation, all of the universe, everything that is a part of our existence is, in fact, right now groaning like a woman in labor because of the ill effects of the fall right now. All of creation is groaning. When Adam and Eve sinned, the shockwaves and reverberations were felt all throughout the universe, and nothing has been the same since. Nothing. Everything was thrown out of balance so that now the lion can no longer lie down with the lamb. Earthquakes are everywhere, hidden places like Puerto Rico. Wildfires are destroying animals and human life in places like Australia and California. Tsunamis wipe out out entire populations in places like Japan. Mudslides happen in Sierra Leone and devastate both man and beast as 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 well as nature. Everything was thrown out of balance. So then... There is a groaning in all of creation for the fulfillment of Isaiah 65, 17, which says this, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. All of creation is groaning for this day. When there's a new heaven and a new earth and old things are passed away and all of the groaning will be remembered no more. Likewise, creation is groaning for the fulfillment not only of Isaiah 65, 17, but also for the fulfillment of Isaiah 35, 10. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing or groaning shall flee away. All of creation is groaning. But not only is creation groaning, the second part of this trilogy of groans I see, not only is creation groaning, also the creatures are groaning. We ourselves, look at what 23 says, and not only creation, but we ourselves. We have the first fruit of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, all of us. Not only creation at large, but all of us, we ourselves are groaning right now. We're groaning because we're eagerly, Paul says, looking forward to the adoption of sons. What is that? What is he talking about? So, based on what he says in chapter 8, verses 14 through 16, our spirits have already been adopted. Right? In 14 through 16, he says this. Let me read it for you. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So then the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Our spirits, little s, because we are not the spirit, but we have a spirit. Part of our makeup is spirit, and that part of us has already been adopted. So what is this groaning that's happening now? What is this about when Paul says that the creatures, we ourselves, are groaning for the adoption of sons? He's not talking about our spirit. He's talking about the redemption of our bodies. The redemption. That's what it says at the end of the text. The redemption of our bodies. 
kings. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about that we are groaning in anticipation of our glorified bodies. Our glorified bodies. You know, those bodies that we look forward to that no longer break. The bodies that we look forward to that no longer get sick. The bodies that we look forward to that no longer fall apart. Anybody's body falling apart? See, I can look out and I can see about, I don't know, if it's not quite half. But some of y'all are smiling. And, some, and nodding and chilling. And some of y'all are looking at me like, what is he talking about? Well, let me just suggest to you that if you keep going to bed and you keep waking up, one day you're going to be smiling with the rest of these folks and shaking your head because one day you're going to wake up and you're going to have a pain where you didn't even know you had a part. And the things that you used to be able to do easily, like just roll out of bed, ain't going to happen no more. Because our bodies are falling apart and creation, the creatures of creation ourselves are groaning for the redemption of our bodies so that when we get to that point, our bodies won't fall apart no more. Our limbs won't stop working anymore. Our backs won't hurt anymore. We won't have headaches anymore. There'll be no more cancer. There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more diabetes. There'll be no more any of that. There'll be no more because we will have arrived at the redemption of our glorified bodies. It's what Paul says, and he talks about in Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21, he says this, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so the second part of this trilogy of groaning is that we ourselves, the creatures, are groaning for the redemption of our bodies. Third part, though, is is really, really good because the third groaning is this. It's in verses 26 and 27. Is this the spirit. God himself is groaning. God himself, the spirit is groaning, right? Here's what 26 and 27 says. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what, it, what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit, God, is groaning in intercession for us because we don't know what or how to pray. So here it is. God is talking to God on our behalf right now. He's interceding for us right now because we don't have a clue how to pray or what to pray for. So, Beautiful thing is, is that there, there's groanings happening right now. You know what a groan is, right? A groan is something that comes from deep within that just comes out of you when you don't have the words to express yourself. It's what, now y'all might have called her something different, but I call her Big Mama. It's what Big Mama used to do. I don't know, she might be Mimi, Granny, whatever, but for me, she was Big Mama. Big Mama used to groan. It's what happens deep on, and, the, and God himself. Maybe you called it moaning. Maybe you called it humming. I don't know, but but, but we know that that it's that thing that comes from deep within when you can't find the words. You just groan, you hum, and you moan. You know that. You know that thing that comes from deep within that you used to hear echoing through the house when you knew that there was something on mama, grandmama, daddy, granddaddy's mind, and you just heard them humming "Amazing Grace." Couldn't even couldn't even figure out how to say the words. 
God right now is talking to God in a moan on our behalf because we have no idea what to pray for or how to pray. And what is interesting is that the Spirit is going to the Father on our behalf so that he can pray for us according not to our will, which we don't understand the will of God or even able to articulate it. He's going to God so that he can pray for us according to the will of God. Because when we pray, we miss the will of God. We, we, we put our will in. We miss it. We miss. So he's groaning to himself on our behalf. So we have these modes of transportation that we believe will help us. Paul says, not we believe, but Paul says will help us get there. Next one I see is hope. Next mode is hope. Hope is in verses 24 and 25. Verses 24 and 25 say this, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Hope will take us to glory. It's, it, it, it's, it's part of our transportation. Is this blind expectation of the fulfillment of, of the promise of future glory, blind expectation of the fulfillment of the promise of future glory. It's the Greek word elpis. Y'all say elpis. It means expectation. You should know that word. We covered it quite extensively when we planted this, this campus. It, it, it's the name of our campus. It's, it's expectation. Uh, it's the key to persevering. In other words, the key, though, to persevering in suffering with hope is to keep your eyes on the promised future glory that God has promised us. It is how Paul explains it in Romans 15, 13, which we quoted every Sunday morning when we first planted this gathering. Romans 15, 13 from the NIV says this, May the God of hope fill you with all hope, fill you with all joy, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what helps us get to glory is this blind expectation. Because if you could see it, it wouldn't be hope. Right? You have to have blind expectation, which leads me to the fifth and final mode of transportation to our destination. And is this confidence, confidence. It's in, it's in uh, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, Romans 8, 28, and we hear it quoted all the time, and it's probably one of your favorites as well. It's, it, it's our favorites until we have to face the reality of it, <laughs> right? We like to quote it, but we don't really like Sam to face the reality of it. But here's what it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's what 28 says. Let's just start there, right? Confidence. We find confidence. The road to glory is not best negotiated in timidity, in anemia, or in impotence, but rather it's best negotiated in confidence. The road to glory is confidence is like yeast in a cake. Any bakers in the house? Yeast is that ingredient in the cake that causes it to rise. In the same sense, confidence in God causes you, causes me, causes us to rise to the occasion, no matter what the occasion is. That's what confidence does. Uh, in verses 28 through 30, Paul gives some assurances to help strengthen the believer's confidence because on this journey, you're going to need some confidence. In order to arrive at 18 and 30, the glory and the glorification, you're going to need some confidence. Paul begins in verse 28 with these famous three words, and we know. And we know. I love those three words because those three words do not say, and we think, and we suppose, and we guess. It says, and we know, which signifies a strong confidence in what he writes next. So what do we know? Here's what we know. There must be confidence that God can and will bring good out of every situation. 
Paul reminds us that our God is a synergistic God. He is able to synergize and synchronize all things in the lives of those that love him and are called according to his purpose so that those things work out for our good. Even those things that appear bad are those things that were meant for and intended for evil. That's the reason why I say it's, it's easy to quote it, but it's hard to live it because we want to we say God uh, will we'll make all things work together for my good. And we know all things work. But the part that's so hard is the all. <laughs> right? Because we, we, it's hard for us to see bad things, evil things working for our good. But all we need to do is remember the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph helps us to realize that even things that were meant for evil will work out for our good. Because I'm reminded at the end of Genesis chapter 50, when Jacob uh, has died, Israel has died, and the brothers of Joseph have all done this evil to him. In the interest of time, you know the story. I'm not going to walk you through the story. We're getting ready to get to the story on Wednesday night. So if you want to hear the story, come on Wednesday night, and we'll cover it in detail. But today, in the interest of these couple of minutes I have left, let me just say, his brothers had done him wrong. And at the end of Jacob, Israel's life, in Genesis chapter 50, Israel has died. And his brothers now are scared that Joseph is going to seek revenge on them. And they come to Joseph pleading for forgiveness. And Joseph says these words. Joseph says in 50:20, as for you, you meant it for evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph says it was meant for evil, but God worked it out for good. And then in 29, we get confidence from the fact that God has already made the final decision that we will be like Jesus someday. Look at what it says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God has already made the final. There's no other decision to be made that you will be like Jesus one day. It's already settled. You ought to get confidence from that. And then lastly, in verse 30, we get confidence from the fact that we've already been glorified in the eyes of God. Look at what verse 30 says. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Notice all these words end with ED, which means they're in the past tense. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's already happened in the eyes of God. I love what Paul says about it in Ephesians 2, 5, and 6 about these ED past tense words and the fact that we've already been glorified. Here's what Paul says. Even we were dead in our trespasses. Made God, he's talking about God. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice that word seat ends in an ED, which means that it's past tense, which means that in the eyes of God, you're already sitting in heaven. Isn't that something? And, and watch this. Nothing or no one can change that. You've already been glorified. And for the believer, that ought to give us confidence right now as we live life. All of these, all of these modes of transportation, suffering, waiting, groaning, hope, confidence, work together to form our ultimate transportation to glory. And it's in Colossians 1.27. Here's what Paul says in Colossians 1.27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. All of those modes all fold together in this one. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, I like to leave you sometimes with a poem. I'm going to do that today. I found this interesting one that is entitled that, just that, the hope of glory. It's by Michael Johnson. Here's what Michael says. When heaven's glory is one's heart, the hope of life will dwell, allowing us a brand new start to walk from death to hell. 
Through faith we have God's guarantee. Through trust, life's plan is, life's place is one. Through love, God's granted you and me believing in his son. Not from outside has one to grow. Once Christ has set us free from inside out, spirit should flow that others lost may see. No longer do we wonder why. No doubt reveals the eyes when Jesus died, then you and I may with our Savior rise. The mystery of our Father's plan, the secret Paul revealed, the promise given mortal man the Lord has now unsealed the hope of glory mine and yours life's crown of brilliant gold the key to open heaven's doors just as the prophets told how wonderful is heaven's love the power of God's might transforming sinners now above who've come into the light oh lord dear god who have thought that i would find such grace that I once cleaned and spirit taught will see my father's face. The hope of glory. It's our destination. There's some difficulties that we must endure as our mode of transportation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We honor you. We thank you for this promise that you've given us, this promise of glory. We look forward to it. We wait for it. We anticipate it. We expect it. We receive it. We know it's already done. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. There may be someone here who is yet to form a relationship and submit in relationship to Jesus. We want to extend to you the invitation to come and to know him today that your life will never be the same. Would you come? Anyone? He stands with his arms spread wide and says, if anyone would, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would hear my knock and open and receive me, I'll come in. He says, I'll sup with him and he'll sup with me. He says, come unto me all you that labor and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. He's standing with open arms. Anyone? Anyone? And then likewise, we want to also Lord is blessed and blessing and we thank God for the increase. We want to extend the invitation to anyone that might have a desire to join the Bethel Hope family. Would you come? Anyone? God for everyone being here today and uh, remember the prayer requests that we have on our list and 